0: And now, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So happy Easter, St. Paul's, and our virtual worshipers on the Facebook community. You've probably seen the memes, the t-shirts, the coffee mugs that say something like this, God said it, I believe it, and that's that. I applaud the efforts of Christians who just want to take a leap of faith into the dark abyss and trust in Jesus and trust in God. That's great. But I believe that the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Day, doesn't have to be a blind leap of faith. Among all the gospel writers, it seems to be that John is the one who actually encourages us to use our human intellect and encourages us to impersonally investigate Easter Day that's what I want to do with you in the next few minutes, to walk with you in this investigation, to, to look at some of the evidences of Easter, and then to open up the tomb and ask you to step in and make a decision. Is Easter real or is it not? So we're in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, verses 1 to 10. We're going to meet three characters today. One is Peter, second is John, third is Mary Magdalene. So the story starts off in verse 1 at a feverish pace, you may notice if you're following along with us. Mary has come to the tomb in the dark still not stillness of the morning on Easter morning, and she's perplexed. A 2,000 to 4,000 pound stone that had been used to seal the tomb of Jesus is now rolled away, and the tomb is opened, and she's perplexed, and she begins to run She runs back and tells John, the gospel writer, John the Beloved, and Peter that she has seen something perplexing. And in verse 4 today, those two disciples start their own jog, their own foot race to the tomb to see what was the matter. Now evidently John was a running back in high school and Peter was a big, goofy, lumbering lineman type. Because we know this, because in verse 4 we see that, that John outraces him, gets there first. Verse 5 says that once he gets there, though, he stoops down. He looks into the cave and sees the linen cloth lying there, but does not go in. Now, the word saw there in Greek is blepo. is a common Greek word. It means to see, but without understanding. It means to look casually at a situation without deeper investigation. He looks superficially into the tomb. But then comes big old lumbering Peter. Get out of my way, brash, bold, and reckless, impetuous Peter. Peter goes straight in, huffing and puffing, out of breath. And then the next verse is literally chocked with meaning, full of investigative information for us to chew on today. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth too, which is been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter saw, he saw, but the word there is not blepo, that common word, it is theoreo, Theoreo literally means in Greek, it's two words that you get from English, one is theater and one is theory, theoreo, you can hear it in those two words. It means to behold, to gaze, to contemplate, to analyze, to look at the evidence for an explanation. He's looking for meaning, what could this mean? Paul Peter was, in other words, entering into a mystery theater, as it were, and he's trying to figure out the plot and the ending. But what did peak, What piqued Peter's interest? Look again at verse seven. He saw the face cloth not lying with the other cloths, but about a neck width apart. What does that mean? Well, first of all, burial practices. If you're in Egypt, typically you mummify bodies, right? You embalm them. If you're in the ancient world and you're in Greece, if you're a Greek or a Roman, typically you would cremate them. But in Palestine, what they would do is wrap you in swaddling cloths all the way up your body with your hands folded neatly over your chest. And a separate wrapping would be around your head like a turban. And you would be packed with precious Precious spices to honor the body and to preserve it. So, what Peter was seeing that day, what piqued his interest was this. C.K. Barrett, the biblical author from Britain, says that the body in some way had disappeared and passed through the clothes and left them lying exactly as they were. Whereas John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, says, the body vaporized and it became something new and wonderful. Here's the deal it was as though this creative power of the universe had caused the very molecular structures of Jesus' body to disassemble, to pass through the fabric, and to reassemble on the other side into a resurrection body that it would never wear out, a glorious body. It would never grow old, never be subject to the laws of natural decay again. That was Peter's sign that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is risen. Now John, John who did not enter with Peter, who kind of casually looked in the tomb but wouldn't go in, in verse 8 he goes in, sees the same sign that Peter saw. And now he too has evidence for his faith that something remarkable, startling, and new and exciting has happened. That Jesus is not only not here, it's not only an empty tomb, but perhaps he's still alive. Now, to Mary. In every scientific inquiry, inquiry every experiment, you've got to start with a theory, right? Well, what was the theory in verse 2? Look at that. Mary says, They have taken the Lord from the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. What was Mary's theory? They've stolen him. Somebody stole the body. Now Mary's theory was quickly blown up by the evidence, by the data points that they saw. First of all, the grave robbers. Perhaps somebody would come into the grave and rob it for precious jewels or whatever it may be. But they left all those costly spices right there in amongst the grave clothes of Jesus. Robbers wouldn't have done that. Well, think about criminals. If you've ever been the victim of somebody who's broken into your home, you know that they come in with haste. They throw open drawers and throw clothes all around and kick in doors and otherwise leave the place in quite a mess. There was none of that, none of that. The swaddling clothes had just come down. The turban was in its place, neatly to the side. Fascinating. It wasn't robbers. But could it have been some of the disciples early that morning? They must have done it. A bit of mystery theater again. Well, here's the deal. If the disciples had come from the body, they would never unwrap it, unswaddle it, to dishonor and show the nakedness of their master. They would never shame his lifeless corpse. If they had taken the body, they would have taken it wrapped up and dignified. So Peter and John began to think, could this be the very power of God at work? Could this be that God is doing something new in the world? Could this be that our God is bringing life out of dead, old, dank places? They were beginning to believe, but not fully, not yet. Look at verse 9. They saw and believed. And yet, they did not understand the scriptures yet, that he must rise from the dead. You see, they were investigative reporters. They were putting pieces of the puzzle, the mystery of Easter together, piece by piece. And my point is this. They weren't simplistic in their faith. It wasn't God said it, I believe, and that's that. They weren't ignorant simpletons. They weren't prone to belief in myth and fable and fairy tales. They demanded evidence in Easter, And their hearts were slow to believe. They needed more evidence. And we have more evidence this morning. Point number two. I want to look at a few of those. No Jew in the time of Jesus expected a man to rise in the middle of history. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection at the end of days, but no one came to the tomb that day expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. Point number one. Point number two. Mary and the other women are the primary witnesses, a woman. There was a Greek philosopher named Celsus who was a detractor of the church. He was brilliant, but he used his intellect to make enemies of Christians. And he said this, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a historical female? And he was right, as much as I hate to say it. It was an era of misogyny. Even the Jewish men of that age would get up every morning and the first prayer they said was, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, I thank you that you did not make me a slave. I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile. And Lord, I thank you more that you did make me a woman. So to put the women at the central part of the story, to tell the witness and the testimony of Easter can only mean one thing. They opened themselves up to detractors and criticism because they were telling the story as it occurred with every single detail in place. All the grittiness and earthiness that comes with truth-telling, John left it in the gospel. Number three, over the next 50 days, they would see Jesus in various situations risen from the dead. Over 500 people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, would witness Jesus in one place or another. But here's the point, all these appearances, every time, pretty much, they reacted in fear and in trembling and in skepticism and in unbelief. One place it says, they feared that it was too good to be true. They wanted to believe, but they couldn't allow themselves to believe. And wasn't it Doubting Thomas that was the greatest investigative reporter of all? He said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. These people weren't mindless. They were skeptics. They weren't simpletons. They were slow to believe. They needed evidence. Point number four. There were many would-be messiahs in and around the time of Jesus. I think some scholars say as many as 70. One of those would-be messiahs was Simon Bar Kokhba. And what he did was the same as the rest of them. He would get some disciples together, just like Jesus did, and then he would begin to teach this band of disciples his ways of of doing things in the world, just like Jesus did. Suddenly they would come to figure out that this is our guy. This is the Messiah. We're going to follow you to your death, just as Jesus' disciples said to him, They would get stirred up by all this talk about kings and kingdom and overcoming Rome just as Jesus' disciples did about him. And then Rome would come in and they would squash the leader and all the other bugs would run home just as Jesus' disciples did. But only one person of the 70 would-be disciples is still talked about today. Only one of those is still followed today. Ever wonder why there's no first church of Simon Bar Kokhba in Somerville, South Carolina? Because he's dead and in the grave. Ever wonder why there are 2.2 billion Christians across the world? Because he lives. Jesus lives today. Another point, number five. They began to worship Jesus over the next 50 days of his appearances. Don't take that lightly. This was radical stuff. They were radical monotheists. They didn't worship men. In fact, they didn't even write the name of God in full on a piece of paper. Some Jewish women, some moms, would believe that her son hung the moon. But none of them would worship their son as God. But guess what? Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, after seeing Jesus resurrected so many times, uh, resurrection appearances 120 of his disciples, along with his mama and his brothers and his sisters, were in the upper precincts of the Holy Temple, and they were worshiping Jesus as God himself, with Mother Mary worshiping her son. Something, they saw something, some evidences that led them to believe that he was not dead, but he was raised and is the very Son of God. Last but not least, God took 12 disciples who were weary, befuddled, fearful, not very courageous, not very bold. And the message of Easter compelled them in the Great Commission to leave their homes and their families and their businesses and to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for sin, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, and they took it to the ends of the earth. And those 12 men died in the mission field. I just ask you today, would anyone die for an idle tale, a fable, a flimsy story with no credibility? Would anyone leave their families and risk their lives unless they were absolutely convinced by the evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead, that Jesus lives? I submit to you today that none of this would have happened had they not found the evidence. These were skeptics. They were hard to believe. And yet when they discovered that Easter was incontrovertible in its evidence, they took their gospel to the ends of the earth, and they died for the message. So last point, I want to compel you to peer into the tomb today, to either take the evidence today and receive it for yourself or reject it. One Roman Catholic scholar named Shisako Endo, who was a Japanese Roman Catholic, He said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you have to conclude that something else hit those disciples that was every bit amazing. It may be different, but it had to be with equal force and equal electrifying intensity. If you try and explain the changed lives of these disciples at Easter in any other way, you will find yourself making leaps of faith greater than, Then if we'd believed in the resurrection to start with, what changed them? Peter, Mary, John. I invite you to step into the tomb with them. Peer into the emptiness. And if you are a believer this morning and you peer into that empty tomb, give shouts of glory to God. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Hallelujah. He's risen. The Lord is risen indeed. But if you're a skeptic, if you're still an unbeliever, know this. The Easter day has more unparalleled attestation than many events in the ancient world. You can examine it historically, psychologically, philosophically, scientifically. Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Boyle, Roger Bacon, Blaise Pascal, the inventor of the calculator, who was a physicist and mathematician, John Polkinghorne in our modern day, who became Sir John Polkinghorne was a theoretical physicist and an Anglican priest. All these brilliant people have looked into the tomb in skepticism and been filled with faith in Easter Day. They were all Christians, brilliant men who examined the evidence. If you remain skeptical today, I want to ease your minds. I want to ease your minds because you are in good company, the company of the early disciples, who came to that tomb that morning with skepticism and disbelief and had to gather up all the evidence over the next many days. And then once the evidence became incontrovertible, they were prepared to take Easter out into the world and to change the face of the world. John Updike wrote a poem in 1960, and uh, I'll end with one of the stanzas. He says, Let us not mock God on Easter with metaphor analogy, sidestepping the transcendence of the moment, making the event of Easter into a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of ages past. But let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back. The stone is rolled back, my friends. I invite you to come on in. Look inside like Peter and John. See for yourself, Easter does not have to be primarily just a leap of faith. To God be the glory, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.